Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. God gave Elijah one message for a people whose culture was totally crumbling around them. Is God's message the same for us today? What is it that we need to hear from Him? What a day, huh? What a day. Seeing people's lives turned over to Christ right here in this baptismal pool. It is awesome. Thank you to our deacons for setting this thing up and getting it ready to go. Uh, it takes a long time to get it going. Uh, we have to move it out and move it in every time. And it's kind of a big deal. Thank you. I also want to say thank you to our worship team. You know, you got to realize, I, I know, I know. Sherry, it's hard to get up for the third service. It's hard to get here for the third service. But you also know that on days that you're on, the worship team has been here today already for close to six hours. And they've done all this three times already, plus the practice that they did early this morning. So, I mean, good grief. These are people who are all in. And we're grateful for them, aren't we? Aren't we grateful for them? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, thank you to Larry Spore in the back because if we're if we've all been here for six hours, he's been here for 14 already. <laughs> he uh, starts early and stays late. He's just an incredible, uh, willing, uh, generous person. So I'm going to bring us up to date just a little bit on what we're talking about. We're studying the life of Elijah just a little bit, just a quick little you know uh, overview of Elijah for a few weeks, and we're looking at the, his life and what he did. And we talked last week about the context that Elijah finds himself in. Israel had been a nation assembled, chosen and assembled by God. And he rescued that group of people out of Egypt and led them through the wilderness for 40 years. He was faithful to them through all of that. Even, even after all that time, he was faithful to them, led them to the promised land. They crossed into the land, and God made it possible for them to possess the land. He had been so good to them, fulfilled all of his promises. And they went through a series of kings. God said, you don't need a king. They said, we want a king. God's like, see what you get with that. Um, so that wasn't a good story. Actually, you know, King David was a good king, and he had handed off the reins to his son Solomon in his old age and said, Solomon, you got one thing to do, and it's build the temple of God. We've been waiting and waiting for the temple. God's made us wait, but now it's your time. Build the temple. And so Solomon did, and it was like a dream come true for all of Israel and for God himself because it was his desire that Israel would be his people and that he would live among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And he desired to live in the temple among them, the place where, where the Israelites could go and worship him and make sacrifice to him. And it was like a dream come true that the temple had finally been built and everything seemed to be going really well but you know the saying as the leader goes the nation goes and king solomon fell into some problems he began to import wives from other nations other pagan nations and so they brought with them their pagan practices which crept into israel and diluted the worship of god they weren't just worshiping god they were also worshiping the baal and the other gods. And so things were just 
heading downhill fast and the story of the book of Kings is this long succession of king after king after king, generation after generation that was spiraling farther and farther out of control. In fact, it was so bad that the kingdom of Israel split into two and there was the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom called Israel. In Judah, Jerusalem was the capital and up in Israel, Samaria became the capital. And the story follows through generation after generation after generation of kings. Decades and decades and decades go by and things just seem to get worse and worse till you get to northern king, Israel king, Ahab. And it seems like each king is worse than the last, but especially Ahab, he was evil. He was evil. And the Bible says that Ahab is the worst king Israel had ever seen. In fact, we kind of get a glimpse into what he did first when he started his reign. In 1 Kings 16, it says this, First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. So they had waited for so long for the temple of God. And the nation of Israel was supposed to contain one temple, the temple of the one true God. But evil King Ahab, first thing he does is he builds a temple for the evil demon king, Baal, in the capital city of Samaria. He makes this grand statement, we will not worship Yahweh God, we will worship the Baal. And so he builds this temple for the demon king. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, it says he set up an Asherah pole. So in other words, a, a, a pole, think of a, you know, in Babylon where they put up the pole for everyone to bow down and worship to. It's that kind of thing. It's a pole. It's a symbol of more demon gods. You got the Baals and you got the Asherahs and you got these different gods that Ahab is leading the people to worship. The king is supposed to represent God to the nation of Israel. Instead, he's representing Baal and Asherah. And Israel goes from being a monotheistic kingdom, worshiping the one true God, to a polytheistic kingdom, worshiping all of the various different gods. And they're doing all this, and it seems crazy. They know the story. They know the story of what God had done. He was faithful. He made his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He promised that there would be a great nation and that they would worship him in spirit and in truth. He rescued them much later, rescued them out of their enslavement in Egypt, and he guided them across the sea. He made the sea dry land, and they came across, and he dealt with the Egyptian army. He led them, even though they were cursed to wander for 40 years in the desert, he led them all that time and provided for them. And he, he finally, through Moses, guided them all the way up to the promised land. And then through Aaron, he guided them into the promised land. And he made it possible for them to possess the land. Boy, he was a good God. And he had shown himself faithful time after time after time. But the people forgot. They got away from that. They knew the story, but they worshiped the fake demon gods. Instead, why, why, why would they fall for this? Why would, why would Ahab even set up this temple and this Asherah pole? Why would they, 
go in all the wrong directions all of a sudden. Not all of a sudden. There's really a period of king after king, generation after generation. Why, why would they spiral out of control like this? The answer is kind of a duh answer. I mean, think about where they live. They live in a pretty dry, arid area. And the Baal is the fertility god who sends the rain. He's the rain god or the storm god. The Asherah is a fertility god. And they worship the Asherah to celebrate uh, the planting and the harvesting. So they're an agrarian nation in an arid place, and they're chasing after the blessings of rain. They're chasing after the blessings of fertility. They want their crops to be lush and full and have a great harvest. They want the bounty. They want the blessing. And so they're chasing after that blessing of rain. So of course, of course, they're susceptible to worshiping these rain and fertility gods. They're susceptible to this. They've gotten all caught up in the trees and they've lost the picture of the forest. Is that like us today? I mean, are we this way? I mean, don't we remember who we are? Don't we remember that we are, that we, let's get bigger than the church here in LJ. Let's, let's just think, we printed on our money. We are one nation under God. And the church, the church is the one that ought to stand tall and, and be the light to the world, the city on the hill, and call us back like Elijah the prophet. Call us back to the covenant we have with the king. We have a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And so we ought to be that people, that city on the hill, but yet generation by generation, we've fallen. It seems that like Israel, the culture is crumbling around us, falling apart all around us because we've been chasing all the wrong blessings. We've been trying to seek after the things that we think we need right now, and we've forgotten whose we are. And so we've been worshiping, bowing at the Asherah, Whole. We've been bowing in the temple of the demon God because we think, we think that they can give us what God's holding back on. We, don't we? Don't we? Because we trust God. I trust God. I really want God to bless me, right? I really know God's going to handle it. I know his plan is better than my plan. I know his, he, he is God and I'm nobody. And we're, we're really good at that as long as we're in church. But then we take all matters into our own hands. We try to make our life work the way we think it ought to work. We try to, we try to obey the gods of this world to make our life look like, you know, everybody else's life. We want to be as well off financially as we think everybody else is. We want to have all the new, the big, the better, the everything like everybody else has. And so we bow to all the same gods. We seek the reign that the Baal and the Asherah has to give. But the reality is, it's the first blank on your page, is that false gods promise only what the true God provides. 
False gods promise you that if you just chase after me, I'll give you whatever you want. We do it here in America, great with money. We're all about the money here. Man, we're all about it. We will sacrifice whatever we got to sacrifice, work harder, put in more hours, do whatever we got to do to make the ends meet and to achieve more, to get more, to one-up our neighbors and do whatever. We think, we think that that money will bring us security. We think it'll bring us happiness. We think it'll make our life better and easier. I mean, Baal promises that if you just make more money, you'll be okay. You'll be secure. But the reality is you wake up one day and you find out you've lost one of your children. There's no amount of money that can make you secure in that. Am I right? It's fake. It's a false security. So Elijah has this message on his heart. And he's been hiding out. Because remember, he spoke to King Ahab. He, he appeared before Ahab, and he made the statement, you know, you think that your God, the Baal, sends the rain? I'll show you who sends the rain, because from right now until I say so, there's going to be no rain. I'm stopping the rain. Elijah speaks on God's behalf, and he's showing that God is really the God of rain. Elijah speaks this to Ahab, and then God removes Elijah and hides him out in the Kareth Ravine. Remember we looked at that last week in the Kareth Ravine? He hides out there for a while till God moves him to live in the widow's house for a while. He's there. And this long period of time goes by. Three years go by. And the drought drags on and on. It gets worse and worse. No rain in sight, no clouds in the sky, and nobody can remember. It's been years since we had a good harvest it's been years since there's been enough for everybody. People are suffering. People are dying because of this drought. But now it's time, three years later, it's time for, for Elijah to reappear before Ahab. God sends him to Ahab. So uh, Elijah sends people ahead of him, go tell him I'm coming. And sure enough, he appears before Ahab. And we pick up the story in 1 Kings 18. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? Calling Elijah the troublemaker. We're in this mess because of you. We have this drought going. People are suffering and dying because of you. You said there would be no rain, and now there's no rain. Another word for troublemaker here in this translation is snake. You're the snake in the grass. It's your fault that we are in this place. Way to go. Thanks a lot. Should have you killed right now because you're the bringer of trouble. And Elijah responds, I've made no trouble for Israel. He says, you and your family are the troublemakers for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshiped the images of Baal instead. He's saying, it's not me. It's you. It's not me, it's you. You're the one that has led people away from the covenant. You're the one that's led people away from the one true God, and you've led them into all the wrong things, and now you are suffering the consequences. This isn't my fault. I just speak the truth, and you have been going the wrong way for far too long, and now you're ending up exactly where you were heading. What is it about us? 
What is it about us today in the 21st century? For some reason, we think that we can run hard and long in the wrong direction and not have to suffer any consequences. You know, one of the things I like to do, I like to ride motorcycles on long, multi-day rides with friends. And we go, and I just play follow the leader, you know. I just, I just want to ride. Um, I just, so I just go. I just, I just get his taillights in sight, and I just go. And there's several of us in the, you know, in the group, and we're just riding, riding. And we do multiple states over multiple days. I love doing that. Don't get to do it very often. Um, but I'm a believer in the blessing of God, the gift of God that we call GPS. I love the GPS. I mean, I've got a GPS thing on my bike, and so I can just plug in where I'm going, and it'll just take me right there, no problem. But usually when I'm playing follow the leader, for whatever reason, my leader doesn't believe in the gift of God called GPS. And so what my leaders do is they like to they like to get the paper maps out, you know, the night before we go and commit it to memory. We're doing four states in three days, you know, and, and we're we're gonna be going on this circuit and in that circuit, we're going up here in these mountains and over there in that hillside, and we're gonna be doing all this, but they but they got it right here. And so it's common, it's just common. No matter who I'm not picking out on anybody, it's no matter who the leader is. It just seems like every time I'm on one of these rides, we're just cruising along, cruising along, and having, oh, it's just nice to be out in the wind and everything. And then all of a sudden the leader just kind of pulls over. So we all pull in the parking lot. We're like, hey, what's up? He's like, oh man, nothing. We just we missed a turn back there. Oh, okay, no big deal. How far back? I don't know, about two and a half hours. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And it's like, what? Like, yeah, we're going to do this circuit, this circuit, this circuit, this circuit, but we took a wrong turn. We we're supposed to be in Tennessee, but we're in West Virginia. Sorry. Um, so, so now we're going to be like, ah, oh, and now we can't even get to everything we were going to get to because we got we to gotta go the two hours back, and then we got to get the two hours more in the direction we're supposed to go in, and it's hard to get back in the right place. When you go in the wrong direction... You suffer the consequences. When you go in the wrong direction, it's hard to get back. But that's not the way we want to play it today in our social media culture, right? Today, we want to run hard in the wrong. We want to do everything we can do to go down the wrong road in our life, to make a disaster in everything we got, break our relationships, ruin our financial life, and walk hard and and strong away from God. And we want to get way, 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 way down that road. And then, all of a sudden, everything falls apart. Relationships break. We're out of money. Nobody respects us. There's conflict in our lives. We built a nest of disaster over a long period of time. And so what do we do? The biblical word for what we're supposed to do is what? It's repent. Turn back to him, but that's not what we do. Instead of repenting, we get on our social media. Oh, all the haters got to hate. Everybody just hates me, blah, blah, blah. And so we point our fingers at it's everybody else's fault. And then what do we do? We get on there and we're like, you go, girl. We love you. We're with you. You keep doing what you're doing. You're awesome. And when we don't do that, we are labeled 
troublemaker. We're labeled snake in the grass. You're judgmental. You're not accepting of people right where they are. And I just want to ask you, when someone's going hard down the wrong road, is it loving to say, you go, girl? What's the loving thing to do? Stop! Come back. Come back. You're going the wrong way. You're ruining everything, and it's only going to get worse. I love you, and I can't stand to see you doing this to yourself. I can't go where you're going, but, dude, if you just turn around, I'll get my arms around you, and we will go in the right direction together. Amen? That's the loving thing to do. If I looked outside, if I walked outside and looked down the hill into Highway 515 and I saw my grandson running out in the road to play on the asphalt, would I be like, oh, look how much I love him. Look at him. He's just so precious. He can do whatever he wants. Is that what I'm going to do? Or am I going to go blazing through the woods, getting cut up and torn up to grab him by the scruff of the neck and get him out of the highway as fast as he can before a semi comes along and flattens him like a pancake, right? Because I love him, so I'm going to do everything I can to rescue him from the consequences of his dumb decisions. Hello? That's the godly, loving thing to do, but it's not the social media politically correct thing to do. And so when we, when we call it out in people's lives, we're labeled troublemaker. We're labeled snake. And heads up, that's only going to get worse. So here they are living the consequences. I guess what I'm trying to say, next blank on your page, is that the wrong road only leads to the wrong destination. The wrong road only leads to the wrong destination. Um, this is who we are today in church. We, we, just, we get on the wrong road real easily, and we go the wrong way way too fast. And Elijah is calling his own people back. That's why there's about to be this showdown. He's saying, okay, I'm coming back, and there's going to be a showdown between me and all of the Baal people, and we're going to see who the real God is. In fact, here's what he says to the king. He says, summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel. By the way, I'm buying a truckload of Mount Carmel ice cream. That's a great brand name for ice cream, isn't it? Mount Carmel. No? Am I the only one? Mount Hot Fudge? Is that what you'd rather have, huh? Am I going to share? Sure. If I got a truckload, I'll share. Yeah. So, come to Mount Carmel along with the, look at this, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. What, you, what, what I haven't talked about is by this time, Jezebel and Ahab have killed off all the prophets of God. They've murdered them. They want to shut them up. They want to deplatform them. They want to keep them from talking about God. And Elijah, because God's been hiding them out, Elijah's the only one left. And now he's calling for a showdown between he himself and the 850 prophets of the demon gods. One against 850. Yeah, this is going to be a showdown. 
and the results will prove who the real God is. So all the people of Israel are like, bring it, dude. Come on. We want to see this happen. This is going to be a good showdown. So in verse 20, uh, Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. And before anything else happens, Elijah stands before the people. And here's what he says. He says to Israel, God's people, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, serve him, go all in with him. But if Baal is really God, serve him. Go all in with him. Stop wavering. Well, I don't know if it's God or I don't know if it's Baal. I don't know if it's God. Yeah, we love God, but oh, we love Baal. Stop it. Pick a side and go all in. But all the people were completely silent. Nobody wanted to say anything. Nobody wanted to pick sides. They wanted to kind of keep quiet, get your tail between your legs, get your head down. Don't make eye contact. Dude, I feel like that's the definition of the body of Christ in the world today. I feel like we've been beaten down over and over and over again. We keep losing in the media. We keep losing in the education space. We keep losing in business. We keep losing in every way you can think of, and I feel like we've been knocked down, knocked down, knocked down, and rather than stand up, picking a side, saying, I worship God like Elijah did. Remember, that was his name. The Lord is my God. Instead of that, we just kind of hope nobody notices. Keep our heads down. Say amen on Sunday mornings, but during the week, mm. I mean, I believe, I believe in God. But mm, I don't want to make waves. You know, I really, I really trust in God, but mm, I really know I got to have what I need. And if I take too loud of a stand, I won't get that promotion. I won't be as popular. I won't have what I think I need. I'm all about him on Sunday. But by the time I drive out of the parking lot, I'm taking everything back into my own hands again. I want it my way. James, the brother of Jesus, echoed Elijah's sentiment beautifully. In James 1, he said, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he'll give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. And here he says it exactly. Do not waver. Now look at this. This is really important. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through James, the brother of Jesus. He says, do not waver for, look at this, a person with divided loyalty, a person, amen on Sunday and do it my way during the week, a person who's back and forth is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that's blown and tossed by the wind, not sure which way he's going. Now, now, I want you to be careful as we look at this next part and know who he's talking about. He's talking about the wavering person who's not taking a stand, not picking one and going all in. He says this, those people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. 
So write your prayer requests. Put it on social media. Ask for people to pray for you. Seek God with, you know, all your whatever heart-ish when you have time. But don't expect anything from the Lord. That's James talking, not Steve. Don't expect anything from the Lord because your loyalty is divided between God and the world and you're unstable in everything that you do. James's message echoes Elijah's message. His message is this. Next blank on your page. Stop wavering. Stop wavering. Pick a side. Stop playing church on Sundays and living life like hell the rest of the week. Be the person that God has designed you to be. He knows who you are. Don't you? Trust him. Rely on him. Give yourself to him. Stop wavering. This is Elijah's message to his people, and then that's when the showdown happens. I'm not going to read the whole thing. i got to kind of summarize for time. But basically what happens is Elijah's like, all right, Baal prophets, here's what we're going to do. I'm setting the terms because there's only one of me. So here's what we're going to do. You build an altar, and I'll build an altar, okay? Uh, you load yours up with wood, and I'll load mine up with wood. We'll bring two bulls. Somebody get two bulls for me. We're going to bring two bulls. You pick which bull you want, and you cut him up and put him on the altar, and I'll cut one up and put it on the altar. You get to choose which one. And then, and then we'll each call on our own God. You call on the Baal. I'll call on the name of the Lord. And whichever one answers by consuming the offering with fire, that's the true God. Whichever one gives us fire, that'll be the true God. And all the people went, whoa, okay, this will be good. And the Baal leader said, no problem, dude. And so they got the bull, cut it up, put it on the altar, and they start dancing around the altar. They start dancing around. Yay, Baal, we love Baal. Yay, Baal, we love Baal. Yay, Asherah, we love Asherah. And they're dancing around, dancing around, and they do this for hours. They do it from early in the morning until about noontime. Yay, Baal, we love Baal. Yay, Baal, we love Baal. And they do it till they get to where they're tired. They're just, they're getting exhausted. It says that they start kind of limping around. They're just like, hey, Baal, we love Baal. They're tired. Nothing happening. And so about noontime, Elijah begins to kind of mock them. He begins to kind of mock them, calling them out. In, in uh, 1 Kings 18, 27, he says to him, he says, well, you're going to have to shout louder because surely your God can hear you, right? I mean, here you are. It's been hours now, and you're still calling out. Surely your God's a God, right? Right? We all believe in the Baal, right? Surely. Where's he at? Maybe he's daydreaming, not really paying very good attention to you right now. Or, and I'm not kidding, this is what he says, maybe he's going number two. Can't be bothered with your mess right now. It's because it's been a while. So maybe he's out, he's on the, back, he's on the pot. Uh, maybe he's away on a trip. He's got a vacation he's planned out. Or maybe he's just sleeping and needs to be awakened. Here's Elijah just giving him a hard time, just juking him, you know, and being like, dude... You're wasting your time. 
but they keep going. In fact, this kind of incentivizes them and they get all upset about it. So they kind of get a renewed energy and they start dancing around even more. Yay, Baal, we love Baal, yay, Baal. And it says that they even start cutting themselves with swords and knives until it says the blood gushes from them. I mean, they were so intent on crying out to their fake demon God that they were willing to make it hurt. They were willing to literally bleed for their demon God. It's so funny, you know, I, sometimes I'm in the back of the room uh, while we're doing worship. You know, I, I prefer to be right up here, but sometimes I'm just in the back and I'm just, you know, it's, it's fun. We do two songs in a row. So it's about, you know, like, I don't know, eight, nine minutes you know, of worship together. And then as soon as that last chord is struck, I'll watch the whole back row is like, and they sit down, so glad it's over. I had to stand up for nine minutes. I'm not kidding. You know it's true. Meanwhile, Jeff, you and the team have been here since literally 6 o'clock and 6.30 this morning. Good grief, I'm so proud of you guys. Uh, but these guys were willing to make it hurt they were willing to go. They picked their side, and they went all in to call upon the name of their fake demon god. It says that they shouted louder and louder. Verse 28, following their normal custom, cutting themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed. They raved. They had a rave. They partied all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still no sound Still no reply, still no response. What do you expect from a fake God? You know, I, it's easy for me to, to criticize myself. You know, God, am I really truly a worshiper of you? Am I willing to give until it hurts? Am I willing to sacrifice till I bleed? And I look at my life, and a lot of times I feel like what I'm really doing, you know, outside of Sunday morning, I feel like I'm sacrificing and bleeding to make all the rest of my life happen. You know, as if there were some difference between the God part of my life on Sunday and then the rest of my life. And I'll do whatever dance I got to do, you know, to keep my marriage good, to keep my family good to keep the money flowing, to, to, to not spend too much, you know, to, to make sure the house is right, to make sure the neighbors are happy. I, I'll, I'll do whatever jig I got to dance. I, I'll dance around all day. Yay, Baal, I love Baal, to make everything seem to work right. But when it comes to the worship of God, where am I at on that? I mean, I'll cut myself and bleed financially for my family. But am I willing to give to God and, until it hurts a little bit? You know, I'll cut and bleed to make sure that all of my stuff is taken care of. But am I surrendered to... Will I actually stop and take enough time to read one chapter of the Bible and let God just speak into my life? I feel like we dance around and we do all of these things just to be vindicated, just to look good, just to feel better about ourselves. But in the end, 
Doesn't Solomon say it's all just meaningless? And the question becomes, is it even worth it? Gaining the whole world, but losing your soul? So now, it's Elijah's turn. They've been dancing and dancing and dancing, and nothing, nothing's happening. So it's Elijah's turn, and I'll pick up the story in verse 33. So Elijah piles wood on the altar, and he cut the bull into pieces, and he laid the pieces on the wood, and then he makes this thing, he challenges them. He says, let's go one better. Let's make this even harder. And he says, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering in the wood. And so they did that. They doused it with water. Remember, drought. So where did the water come from? Now, I've been on Mount Carmel. You can see the Mediterranean Sea just off in the distance. Could be that they brought salt water from there, but it could also be that they were like, well, nothing happened over here. Maybe we should try here. And they might have given, you know, some of the last of their water for this. He says, douse it in water, and they doused it. And then when they were done, he said, do it again. And they, when they were finished, he said, do it again a third time. And they did as he said. And so they had so much water that the bull was soaked, the wood was soaked, there was water all on the ground, and it filled a trench that he had dug around the altar. He had made fire almost impossible. And they were willing to empty the water to make it happen. For whatever reason, they were willing to empty what little they had to give God something really miraculous to do. In verse 36, at the usual time for offering in the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and he prayed. Pray. Now, next Sunday, we're going to look at the prayer life of Elijah. It's going to be interesting. We're going to talk about what prayer even really is and why we do it. But for now, just look at this amazing prayer that he prays. Think about this prayer in contrast with your prayer. Because I don't pray like Elijah prays so much of the time. Here's what he prays. He says, oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so the first thing he's doing is he's remembering God's faithfulness to his promise. And he names names. God, you've been faithful. You made the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember how good you were to them. I remember how good you were to them. You've proven yourself time and time and time again. The first thing he does is he praises God for his faithfulness. And he says this, God, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant. Prove, Lord, that I've done all this not at my command, but at your command. Oh, Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, oh, Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. What's he praying for? He's not praying for himself. That's how we pray. We go to God and say, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day. And then we start praying for, give me this, give me that. I need this. I'm broken here. Fix that problem. Just give me, give me, give me. And we pray for ourselves. But Elijah prays a prayer, God, I want you to be seen. I want everybody to know that you, all this is not for me. It's for you. And he's a praying a prayer of glorifying God. 
And he says, uh, do move, Lord, so that they will know that you are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. And look what happens in verse 38. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. The fire from heaven fell. Everything burned up, and when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out. These Baal worshipers cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. God does the miracle, fire falls from heaven, and God's move does not enrich Elijah. Instead, instead of making Elijah great, God's move makes his name great among his people. In fact, next blank on your page, God moves for his great glory. He moves so that he will be seen and glorified. He moves so that we can't help but fall on our faces before him and say, you are God. I've gotten it wrong all this time. I've been worshiping myself and doing all the wrong things. I've been worshiping fake demon gods, but you, God, you alone are God. Your name be lifted high. You be glorified. I will worship you and you alone, God. That's why he moves. That's the kinds of prayer he answers. Amen? No wonder we feel like God doesn't answer our prayers. We're praying for all the wrong things. We pray for ourselves and for us to be built up when we should be praying Elijah prayers, praying for the glory of God to be seen. Lord, we need to see you again. God, we need to see you again. Our nation has wandered far down the wrong road. Lord, we're far from you. Lord, we've departed from you a long time ago, and we're worshiping all the demon gods, Lord. It's the demon gods that have all the glory in this land. It's the demon gods that get all the credit, Lord, and we just get called troublemakers. But, Lord, it's because our heads are down and our tails are between our legs. And, God, I just pray that you would move again. Move again, Father and drive all of us to our faces before you. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and seen because, Lord, we know that the world would have no choice but to glorify you. Lord, bring revival to us so that you would be glorified. Amen? Amen? Amen. You might be asking the question, why doesn't God move that way today? Why doesn't he do that? He, he let the fire fall from heaven in the Old Testament. Why didn't he do it today? And I would say that's a good question. And you're not the first one to ask that question. And the good news is the writer of Hebrews answers that question very plainly for us. He says at the very beginning of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, he says this, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. Like Elijah, God spoke through Elijah and turned the hearts of his people back to him, only temporarily, but they did turn back to him for a moment. God spoke through Elijah, the prophet. But now, he says, in these final days, God has spoken through his son, 
God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, He created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. God still moves. But today he moves in a much more profound, much more personal way than raining fire from heaven. Today, instead of sending fire to consume a sacrifice, he has sent his only son to become the sacrifice. Because all of us owed a sin debt that we couldn't pay. All of us doomed to an eternity separated from God and under his judgment, suffering the consequences of the road we had traveled. And the only way to get forgiveness for our crimes is shedding of blood. We just can't pay that. So Jesus comes from heaven. He goes to that altar, that cross. And on that cross, he bled and he died on our behalf God took all of my sin all of your sin and he put it on to Jesus and Jesus paid our debt and died in our place he goes to the grave cold dead but three days later he rose again and lives today to bring the fire into your life he lives today to light you up on fire for him He lives today to say you were designed lovingly in the image of God. You were designed to look like him, act like him, talk like him. And when he looks at you, he can see himself in you. Would you live that life? Would you live that? You've been wandering far too long. You remember a time when you were lit up. You remember a time when you were on fire for him. You remember a time when you felt like you could just dwell in the temple with him alone, and that's all you needed. But somewhere along the lines, you started wavering. You started feeling like, well, I'm not sure if it's this or if it's this, or do I need to, amen, uh, but oh, I got to do. And uh, you began wavering and You drifted far from him. You went far down the wrong road. And today he's saying, come back. Come back. Give your heart to me. Come back to me. Let me do in you what only I can do. You're chasing after all the false promises of the Baals of this world. Stop. Come home to me. Let me change you and make you new. Last blank on your page is this. Come back. To him, come back to him. Stop, stop wavering and come back to him. Give him your life and see what he wouldn't just do in and through you. Amen. Amen.